I'm going to start by reading from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, and I'm going to read through verse 12, and we'll talk about just two of the verses in that section. This is to give you context, remind you of the larger picture. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. I do want to remind you, said this a couple times before since we started 2 Timothy, that chapter 1, verse 3 through chapter 2, verse 13, is primarily about urging and encouraging us to remain courageous in standing with God and for God in spite of the cost which may be incurred and which we will have to endure. In verses 6 and 7 of this portion, we are exhorted to make good use of the gift that God has given us, given us in order to stand with him and for him in the home, in the church, in the community. And this portion also reminds us that we can do this because God has also given us a disposition or a mindset, a way of thinking that is not timid, not afraid, but uh, rather of power, love, and discipline or disciplined thinking or sound thinking is really the idea there. In verse 8, rather than letting shame silence us, we are encouraged to join with those Christians who have and still are paying a price for serving God and speaking the truth of God to whomever will listen. And again, we can do that because God will empower us to deal with whatever sufferings are forced upon us as a result of what we're doing. And then verses 9 and 10 infers that we can trust in God's empowerment because of what he, on his own initiative, by his own power, and according to his own purposes and grace, has done for us through Jesus Christ and made known to us through the gospel. For me, Romans 8.32 clearly affirms that we can trust in God, just as Paul is encouraging Timothy to do here in verses 6 through 12. And I do like this portion of scripture. We've read it a number of times before because I like it. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also, with Jesus, freely give us all things? 
he did that for us, he will do this for us. Let's pray. Father, use these scriptures, these words that are here in your word to speak to us today. Give us insight and understanding into you and into our view of you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to talk about verses 9 and 10. Let me just read them once more. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. To strengthen our faith and bolster our confidence that we can trust God to empower us to withstand, say, being shamed or criticized or verbally abused or rejected or probably not in our society currently, but imprisoned or even put to death. To encourage us to believe that we can really trust God to do those things, we have verses 9 and 10. And 9 and 10 give us a what we might call a doctrinal statement or a theology of God's salvation and his method of revealing that truth to us. The essence of this doctrinal statement goes like this. First, it is God who saves us. Secondly, it is God who calls us to live a godly life a life separated from the ways of the world and from the flesh and from the devil. Three, our salvation is the result of God acting on his own initiative. In other words, he was not moved by anything we have done or anything we can do. Four, God has a specific purpose for saving and calling us. Five, we are able to experience God's salvation as a result of God's grace manifested to us through Jesus Christ. Six, from eternity past, God's grace uh, has been worked out. His plan has been worked out. His purpose has been worked out and implemented And that means before God created the heavens and the earth and mankind. Seven, Jesus Christ defeated death and its power to separate us from God. That's power of Christ over the devil and his work. That's the immortality that we receive from Jesus Christ. And Christ has revealed the way to life and immortality through his teachings or what we commonly today call the gospel. I realize we use the gospel to refer often to the New Testament or the basic teachings of Christ, but uh, my best guess is when uh, Paul was writing this, he was referring to just the teachings of Christ or what we have in the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
For Timothy and for us today, this is not new information, and I understand that. But it is worth reviewing. And today, as we think about this information, let us also use it to prepare us for eating the bread and the cup at the end of our meeting today. This doctrine, this theology of salvation, so to speak, reminds us of the greatness of God's eternal plan and purpose. And it reminds us of what I call unrivaled grace. The unrivaled grace of God in saving us. In addition, this doctrinal statement reminds us that we have no influence or effect on God's decision to save us. His plan, his purpose, they're all his doing. And it's true. We must repent. We must believe. uh, We must live accordingly. But that is merely a reasonable response to what he, with his purpose and plan, has done for us. We don't uh, have this idea in our culture, but it's been very strong in other parts of the world. There are those who have power and wealth, and there are those who are impoverished. And if you were one of the impoverished, you would attach yourself to someone who had power and wealth, and they would look after you. They would be your patrons, so to speak. Uh, In the Roman Empire, this was going on even at the time of Christ. This was a practice in Israel throughout the Roman Empire. And uh, you would serve this person that was looking out for you. Possibly you had maybe a bakery. And that uh, person that was looking out for you might have a wedding coming up and he'd call on you and you would provide all the bread he needed. But he would always make sure you didn't go out of business that you could pay your bills, that you could feed your family. And there was this back-and-forth relationship. If we take that idea, patronage is what it's called, and bring it to just the picture of God and us, we are like the impoverished person, and God is that wealthy one. And he is taking care of us, and it is just the reasonable response to give back to him. It is not what he owes us as a result of our response. It's what he does for us of his own free will. Our response is just reasonable. This statement also reminds us that God not only saves us, he calls us to live a holy life here and now. And this truth is supported by what Jesus taught. Just read the Gospels and how he lived on earth. And finally, this statement reminds us that the Bible reveals God's eternal plan his purpose, the defeat of death, the path that we must take to the abundant life in this world, the promise of immortality, and the whole idea of living with God for eternity. So, with these things in mind, we're going to talk about just the same things that I just went over, but uh, support it with some of the other scriptures that we have in the Bible. So, beginning with God saved us. What does God save us from? I don't know how often you think about that question, but for me, it's a worthy question. What what does God save us from? 
Well, he definitely saves us from the penalty of sin so that we don't have to go to hell. And that's one of the uh, primary um, reasons that we invite people to trust in Christ. You don't want to go to hell, do you? Well, believe in, in God, believe in the work of Christ, and you can go to heaven when you die. <clears throat> I'm not the strongest proponent of that particular method. For me, as we understand the scriptures... God saved us, first of all, from the enslaving power of sin. Sin rules over the unbeliever. He saves us from that enslaving power. He saves us from the practice of sin. And then, as a result of that, he saves us from the penalty of sin. We don't have to be separated from God forever. I'm just going to give you three scriptures. Romans 6, 5 and 6 affirms that we have been freed from sin's enslaving power. And you could read that whole chapter, Romans 6. It's a great chapter. Uh, We've studied it in the past. But just these two verses from 6, 5 and 6 affirms this truth. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And the picture there is when we're baptized as believers, we are entering into the death of Christ. And when we come out of the waters, we are rising to the new life of Christ. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old self, our old nature, the old man, was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. One of the uh, truths that I had to kind of fix in my mind was that now that I'm a believer, I don't have to sin. That meant I could no longer blame somebody and I could no longer say I couldn't help myself. But that's been very helpful for me in terms of pressing towards living a godly life. When I believed I had to sin, well, that became a good excuse, after all. Not totally my fault, it's the way God made me, but we have been freed no longer to be slaves to sin. 1 John 3, 7 and 9 affirms that we have been freed from the practice of sin. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. And what's the works of the devil? To get us to live his lifestyle, to tempt us into it, to lure us into it, to take power over us, to influence us, to live his kind of life, the life of sin. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Verse 9, no one who is born of God practices sin because God's seed, God's life abides in him. As Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, it not only shows you love me, but I and the Father will come and abide within you. God's seed, his life abides in him, we in us. And we cannot practice sin because we are born of God. And Romans 6.23 affirms that We have been freed from the penalty of sin, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So what does God save us to? He certainly saves us from something, but is that all he does? No, he saves us to something. 
And if we start answering that question from the perspective of what we've been saved from, which is just a smaller part of the picture, I'll leave it up to you to fill in the rest, then he saves us to become slaves of God. No, we don't use that kind of language very often, but if he freed us from slavery to sin, then he saved us to be slaves of righteousness or of God. And he saved us to practice righteousness as a way of life and then to live forever with him. I suspect we all know enough about being saved to eternal life that nothing more needs to be said about it. And as for being saved to practice righteousness as a way of life, we'll cover that when we look at what it means to be called with a holy calling. But what about being saved to become slaves of God? Is that really true? So Romans 6 again. Romans 6, I'm going to read verses 17 and 18 and then skip to 22 to make the point. And by the way, when I first memorized this and I, and I got to uh, verse 18, it just didn't make sense to me at first. It took me probably a month or two of really pondering it to figure it out. Okay, Romans chapter 6, starting at verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And I thought, righteousness, why, why, would, why would he put that there? Why not slaves of God? And then verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, he says, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. So after I pondered this for a while, I began to realize, well, I began to ask, you derive your benefit, verse 22. What's the benefit? So now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, he writes, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life, the benefit is righteousness. Yeah. I pointed out earlier that our salvation is a result of God's initiative, not ours. So because we have used this scripture so often from Romans 5, uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, which certainly validates that point. I want to read 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Because this also validates the point that it was God's initiative and nothing on our part that brought about this great salvation. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And then verse 10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In this is love. What does that mean? Well, it's very easy to love somebody who loves you. It's very easy to feel endeared to somebody who's doing really good things, kind things, loving things, nice things for you. But how about loving somebody who's not treating you so well? 
That's love. He acted first. Yeah, while we were yet sinners, he loved us. And this is love. This is what love really is. Love is really something that is given to anybody who needs it, no matter what they're like. Whether it's in the moment or in their lifetime. Yeah, what if your enemy is hungry? Feed him. What if he's thirsty? Give him a drink. Yeah, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Yeah, in this is love. God acted on his own. There is nothing that we have done to call this activity from him. The next point is that God has called us with a holy calling. And the essential idea expressed in these words is that God has called us to live a holy life. Or to live a new way of life as opposed to our old way of life. And that's why repentance is the introduction into salvation. Or to live a life of fellowship with God as opposed to living in rebellion against God. Or to live a life of knowing God and which is contrary to being ignorant of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, confirms that we are called to live this new holy way of life. As obedient children, we read, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. For me, the one word in those verses is the word all. The one word that matters the most to me. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. It is relatively difficult to be holy in some of your behavior. But that is a lot easier than being holy in all your behavior. To be holy in all our behavior requires just utter honesty with ourselves about ourselves. We have to be willing to listen to ourselves. We have to be willing to observe ourselves. We have to be willing to reflect on how we have lived our day, how we have treated the people around us, how we have acted in this moment, what we've done when nobody knows what we're doing, We have to be willing to be honest about that and then take appropriate steps to deal with that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 7 affirms that our calling is a holy calling. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Yes. And 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 9 affirms our being called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now I just want to make a few comments on that. It should be obvious that to enter into such fellowship, we must acquire a level of holiness ourselves that makes that kind of fellowship possible. So think about this. How can we fellowship with someone that we are pushing away? How can we fellowship with someone that we are pushing away by being selfish and sinful? And in our sinful selfishness, not only hurting them, but hurting the people they love. 
If you were on the receiving end of that, would you fellowship with the person that's treating you that way? And why would God fellowship with us if we're treating him that way? God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That requires some level of holiness on our part. Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4a puts it this way. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who can have that kind of fellowship with him? Think of the writer of the Psalms possibly picturing Moses and the tent of meeting. I don't know for sure, but that's a possibility. So who can enter that tent? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. The next phrase is not according to our works. And there's nothing we have done or can do to induce or persuade or motivate God to save us and call us to a life of holiness. A life which by its very nature is the abundant life. It isn't just that God has saved us, by the way. It's that he enters into our life and he brings us into this, what if we think of Israel, the new land, the promised land. It is a way of life that is the abundant life. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Jesus uh, pointed out the words abundant life. You may have it more abundantly, he said. Yeah, it's a great life. God's ways actually work. They actually transform us. And in the transforming us, it transforms the way we experience the world around us. This is what God has done on his own. I mean, we were destroying ourselves. He doesn't just save us from our self-destruction. He saves us from our self-destruction and brings us into an abundant life. According to God's rules, and in spite of whatever good we have done or will do, what we deserve for the way we have lived prior to being born again, And the way we've lived since being born again, according to the rules and in spite of all the good we've done, what we deserve is condemnation and eternal death. I know it's very easy to think, you know, we're we're pretty good people. I'm a pretty good person. I live a pretty good life. How many times must we sin to receive the payment for sin, which is eternal death? So if we are rational and reasonable and think about this sensibly, even after coming to faith in God, even after repenting, even after getting our life together in so many ways, have we not sinned more than once? You see, God has acted on his own to save us in spite of what we deserve. Not only prior to our salvation, but after our salvation. Who among us has not failed to love as we ought to love, at least on some occasion? Who among us has not lied, or at least hid the truth in order to present yourself or myself or the situation better than it is? We may not have told an outright lie, but we didn't tell the whole truth because we wanted things to look better. 
who has not been sinfully angry since being born again. And myself being a man, what about us men? Who of us has lived a sexually pure, faithful life since the day we've been saved? Never sinned at all in that area. Who of us? What do we deserve? Look what God has done. So once again, just to reinforce this truth, our salvation is the result of God acting on his own initiative in spite of what we deserve. Titus 3.5, the first part, says it well. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. And the next phrase is, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. God's plan of salvation has a specific purpose, which he is accomplishing. First, he's accomplishing that by having paid the penalty for sin on our behalf, having freed us from the power of sin over us, having broken the power of practiced sin in our lives in our lives. And secondly, by calling all who repent and come to faith to live a holy life. He didn't save us so that we could go on living like we were. No, God loves everybody. That isn't just a phrase that we toss about. It's a truth. And those of us who are adults, if we think about family, We love the people in our family, or probably at least most of them. And that's good. We should love them all. But we love the people in our family, feel endeared to them. And if somebody from the outside hurts one of our family members, don't we feel that pain? Aren't we upset about that? Doesn't that bother us? So can I fail to love you? Can I mistreat you and not have it bother God? You see, he calls us to live a holy life. Why? Just so we have to be holy or we can't do all the fun things that unbelievers get to do? No. So we stop hurting people unnecessarily. We stop inflicting pain and suffering in people's lives that they shouldn't have to endure. You see, I believe God's purpose in saving us is to make us new creatures. And as new creatures, we have a new nature. And as we have that new nature, then we are able to enter into a reconciled, loving relationship with God himself. And we are able to enter into relationships with the people around us without bringing pain, suffering, and sorrow into their lives that's unnecessary. We may have to tell them no, and they feel that's painful. We may have to discipline them, and they feel that's painful. But if we are loving them and doing those things out of love, it's not unnecessary. It's when we do the unnecessary things that hurt people that means we have stepped outside of what God has saved us to be. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 19 says this well, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. 
The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, not dealing with us based on what we deserve. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So part of his purpose also includes sharing the good news, the gospel, the truth about God with the people around us. Living a holy life, yes, but also inviting others into this life because it is the only real life. It works. I do want to just add this, this kind of, Life, fulfilling his purpose for us, requires humility on our part. A humility in how we view ourselves, but also in how we deal with others. If you cannot see how easily you sin, you cannot have compassion or mercy or patience with somebody who is sinning around you. Seeing how easily you sin requires humility, requires honesty with yourself. It requires going back to something I said near the beginning, and that is you don't have to sin, not anymore. So you sin because you wanted to. That's how easily we go into this. And if we are going to deal with the people around us in a loving way, we must have humility. This purpose and grace was granted or given to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And the simple point here is that Jesus Christ is, first of all, as eternal in both directions as God himself. Even though in the realm of time, he had a birth and a death. Now, it's difficult for me to talk about what is eternal because I don't find anything in the English language to give me words to talk about it. We can make comments about it, but to really describe it, how do we describe no beginning? All we know, all we know is beginnings. And we can infer no end. We can kind of picture something that goes on and on forever. But once we stop thinking about it, isn't that the end? So it's a pretty difficult thing to talk about timelessness. It's an intriguing subject. It's fun to talk about, but it's very difficult. And yet, God is timeless. He's outside of time. We are inside of time. We only know time language in order to talk about timelessness. So even though Jesus Christ, in the realm of time, had a birth and a death, he had no beginning, no end. And that leads us to the next reality. God's plan of saving us pre-existed his creation of the heavens and the earth and mankind. Did he come up with it somewhere along the way? Well, that's a time discussion, isn't it? I suppose, since that's all we have, we could say, yeah, he came up with the plan somewhere along the way. When it was, I have no clue. And this whole 
pre-existing to our creation plan and purpose is what brings about our salvation. The story we read oftentimes during Advent on the last Sunday, who will go? Right? And this was a discussion between God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit that took place before they ever created the heavens and the earth. It was in his mind. He knew what he was getting into. He knew what it was going to cost him. He knew what was going to happen. But he did it. Verse 10, But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Simply put, Jesus Christ, coming to earth, revealed the reality of God's plan, what Jesus taught, which became the Gospels, also revealed the reality of God's plan and purpose. And it brought to light immortality, helps us understand that we can live with him forever. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, speaks to this very idea. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Again, during Advent, we look at the the first Sunday is Prophecy Sunday, and we look at the prophetic scriptures concerning Christ, and some of those prophetic scriptures speak of the suffering of Christ. So these were prophecies made and the point is is that it wasn't until Christ got here and he became the fulfillment of God's purpose, plan and he taught about it that we understood it the way we understand it today. They had a glimmer, they had some idea, they knew something was coming, something was going to happen but they didn't fully know. Verse 12 from 1 Peter chapter 1, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. So they just weren't going to be told. Imagine here you are prophesying these things and you have some idea, something's going to happen here, God's going to do something. And God says, well, I'm not going to tell you. I'm just going to tell you this much and this is all you're supposed to reveal. But you, us today, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel, it's it's been made clear by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And these are things that even angels long to look at. Jesus Christ has revealed through his life and his teachings these truths to us. I want to end by reading another scripture from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 6. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. 
For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. 